to give Paul a compliment in the second service, and he forgot to bring out the podium for me in the third service. I don't know how that works. Actually, what I said in the second service, which I'll tell you, is that uh, I have to confess a small sin. I, I don't know if there's ever such thing as a small sin, but man, when Paul plays a piano like that, I'm jealous. I don't know about you guys. But I'm also jealous because that guy can grow hair and I can't grow hair like he can grow hair. So, Oh, well. Appreciate Paul and, and uh, just all that he does is ministry. Hey, a few years ago, I had the opportunity to play uh, at a golf course in central Nebraska, in the Sandhills of Nebraska. It's a prestigious golf course, and so really excited to play there. And I went with a, another buddy of mine who's a pastor at another covenant church in Omaha. And uh, as we're pulling into the property... And we're getting our golf clubs out of the car, and we're going towards the clubhouse. I noticed a couple of signs that I had never seen at a golf course before. There were warning signs that said, beware, there are poisonous rattlesnakes in the area. And I thought, is there a kind of rattlesnake that's not poisonous? That was the first thing that entered my mind. But I thought, I'd never seen that at a golf course before. We go in, we pay for our greens fees, and uh, the club pro told us, he said, hey, you might be especially aware today. It's a nice, warm spring day. It's been a rather cold winter. There might be some snakes out there sunning themselves and getting warm from after hibern- hi- hibernating all winter. And I began to think, can I get my $75 back <laughs> right now that I just paid to play golf at this golf course? So we went out and we played. It was a beautiful course, really. Oh, such a nice course, challenging course. On the fifth hole, my buddy hooked his drive off to the left into the tall prairie grass. And so, you know, being the cheap pastors that we were, we went looking for that ball. But we were also figuring we're, we're biblical. We're looking for the one lost ball. We've got the other 25 that are found. We're going to go look for that lost ball and find that lost ball. So we're running around out there in the tall grass, kind of kicking the grass around. And I see the grass kind of move about three feet in front of me. And so I look to see what it is. And it was the largest snake I've ever seen outside of a zoo in my entire life. And I jumped four feet. I tell you, it was four feet. My basketball coach wouldn't have believed it if he saw it. I jumped four feet, and I immediately ran in the opposite direction. Uh, You know, nobody had to tell me what to do in that situation. I knew I was going to run away. I didn't take out my little snake book and go, what kind of snake is that? Is that a, what kind of snake? Is that a bull snake? Is that a rat snake? Is it a rattlesnake? No, I took off. I went the other direction. I didn't pause to plot my course. I just jumped, and I ran. I knew I needed to be what I needed to do in order to be saved, and I did it. No one had to encourage me. There was a clear and present danger, or at least there could have been clear and present danger, and I was going to do everything I could do to move away from it. You know, there's a way in which we are all in a similar yet perhaps more subtle danger today. We're in a danger of existing but never living. We're in danger of being religious but never really knowing God. We're in danger of, of, of knowing about God, but never experiencing God. We're in danger of living only for this life and not being prepared for what comes after this life. You know, this doesn't seem to be as dangerous to us, but it's the plan of our spiritual enemy to lead us away from God and literally to keep us from experiencing Him in this life. The Bible says, in fact, in Revelation, it says, "...the great dragon was hurled down, that ancient serpent called the devil or Satan." who leads the whole world astray. The danger from this serpent is that we'll be led astray from our real purpose in this world, which is to know God and to live for Him. And we're also in danger of being separated from Him in the world to come. So this morning, I want to just give a very simple message about how a person experiences God. Sometimes even the most sincere people have grown up in church and do not understand what it means 
to experience God and to live in a relationship with Him. Or to how, how to make that a reality in their life. This was the case with Nicodemus, who we just heard about in the Scripture. This is a man uh, this morning who we learned was a Pharisee. He was a religious leader in Israel. Uh, and yet he did not understand what it meant to know God. He was a good and a religious person. He was knowledgeable of the Scriptures. But he thought that a relationship with God was all about performance. He thought that the better he was at keeping the rules, the closer to God he would become. Jesus confused Nicodemus when he said to him, I tell you the truth, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he's born again, or if he's born from above. Jesus was talking about a relationship with God. And Nicodemus was thinking in terms of following rules. Jesus was talking about experiencing God, and Nicodemus used to think, was used to thinking in terms of obedience to God's rules. Jesus was talking about entering into a new kind of experience, a birth into a spiritual world, and Nicodemus did not understand the spiritual world and what it meant to be born into it. Nicodemus thought he knew what was required. He thought he saw and understood, but he didn't really understand. Helen Keller once was asked, what would be worse than being born blind? To which she replied, having sight without a vision. Nicodemus had sight, but he could not see how to have a relationship with the holy and the living God. A number of years ago, during a British conference on uh, comparative religions, experts from around the world debated what belief, if any, was unique to the Christian faith. They began eliminating possibilities. Incarnation? Well, other religions had different versions of God appearing in human form. Resurrection? Again, other religions in account, had accounts of return from the death. Uh, debate went on for some time until C.S. Lewis walked into the room. What's the ruckus about, he asked, and he heard in reply that his colleagues were discussing Christianity's unique contribution among world religions. And Lewis replied, oh, that's easy. It's grace. After some discussion, the conferees had to agree with him. The notion of God's love coming to us free of charge, no strings attached, seems to go against every instinct of humanity. The Buddhist Eightfold Pathway... Uh, the Hindu doctrine of karma, the Jewish covenant and law, the Muslim code of law, all offer ways to earn God's favor. Only Christ dares to make love, God's love unconditional. It shocks us to hear that we can't earn our interest, entrance into God's kingdom. Grace transcends human understanding. We want to think that we can earn or that we deserve God's favor that's how we think. The scandal of grace challenges our thinking, and it makes it hard to accept. And so today we see this encounter between Nicodemus and Jesus. We meet Nicodemus, a religious man with a heightened sense of spirituality that Jesus challenges to think outside of the box. So I want to invite you to go to John chapter 3 again, and we're going to just kind of walk through that passage that was read. And if you've got your Bibles, turn to John 3. If you've got your phones, you can come to the Version app that we have. Uh, here, and the uh, passage will be there as well. So let's see what we see in this story. In the first four verses, we can learn a lot in that, just those first few verses. We learn that, that Nicodemus was a Pharisee. It's a particular sect of, or group of the Jews that were known for their pious living and their adherence, strict adherence to the Old Testament law. Uh, they develop a system of 613 laws and commandments that were even separate from God's Word. They were 365 negative laws 
that were supposed to help them practice following God, and 248 positive laws. And so by the time that Christ came, it's producing a heartless, cold, kind of arrogant form of religion where the Pharisees were feeling like, if you're doing these, these things that we're better than the rest and more acceptable to God than others who don't follow these things so closely. We also learn that he's a member of the Sanhedrin. Uh, it's the Jewish court in Jerusalem that existed from the Persian Empire through the Roman Empire when we meet Nicodemus talking to Jesus in the darkness. And the Sanhedrin has religious power. It also has political power. If you think about it in our context today, it'd be like the Supreme Court and the executive branch being the same group of people. All that power in one group. And, and it has all the elite in their culture. It's got the priests and the laity that were really high up in the Jewish culture. And it's 70 members. And it, the high priest is the president of this uh, Sanhedrin. So we're also told that Nicodemus comes to Jesus at nighttime. And so what's up with that? Why is he coming to him at night? There's a few different possibilities. So he could be coming out of fear of regard for others' opinions about who, what he's doing here. He, uh, Nicodemus is a prominent man. He's a teacher of the Israelites. He's well-trained. He's equipped for teaching. It will not look good for him to acknowledge this untrained teacher. Jesus already had a reputation. The Pharisees really already didn't like him. And so for Nicodemus to go and have a meeting with him would not be favorable in their eyes. He could also be going at nighttime to gain uninterrupted access to Jesus. Jesus usually had a large crowd of people that were following him, especially in the daytime. And so it was hard to have a sustained conversation with him. Maybe nighttime he saw as an opportunity to have a long uh, conversation, a private discussion with Jesus. I think we need to also think about this, that I think there's quite a stark uh, symbol, symbolism going on here. We've got Nicodemus coming to Jesus at nighttime. Literally, it's kind of maybe symbol, symbolic of darkness coming to the light of the world. And we have the lost state of Nicodemus, uh, who is respected by most of the Jews, and yet he's guilty uh, before a holy God. He's in a dark place before a holy God. Well, he opens the conversation courteously. Uh, he flatters Jesus by calling him rabbi, a, a teacher from God. And he comes as one teacher to another. But Jesus quickly cuts to the chase. He he kind of ends the small, small, the small talk that's going on, and he trades the small talk for substance. He knows why Nicodemus came. Nicodemus wants affirmation of his spirituality, the pursuit of the abundant life. Instead, Jesus challenges him, saying, No one can see the kingdom of heaven unless he's born again or born from above. In a single sentence, Jesus dismisses everything that Nicodemus holds dearly. And he demands that he, meet, he, he really understand that he needs to be remade by the power of God. And Nicodemus responds, he says, how can this be? He chooses to misunderstand. It's easier if he misunderstands Jesus. To accept Jesus' words, he must have to erase a lifetime of, of hope, of experience, of learning, of success, of failure, of habits. All these things coming together, practices that have made him the man that he is today, this leader, this Pharisee, a member of the Sanhedrin, to be remade or reborn by God's power instead of personal effort is incomprehensible to Nicodemus. The scandal of grace for forces Nicodemus to look for abundant life outside of himself rather from, than from within. Jesus is challenging him literally to think outside the box, to allow God to regenerate him by God's power. 
And Jesus responds to this question in the next few verses in 5 through 8. And he really, I think, outlines the problem of human spirituality. He goes on, he says, Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to the Spirit. To Spirit. Physical birth has its limitations, he's telling Nicodemus. It gives rise to only what is earthly. Jesus speaks of, an, of a spiritual kingdom. The kingdom of God. A spiritual birth is required to enter this kingdom of God. And he basically tells them, you should not be surprised. What did you expect? There can be no other way but rebirth. He goes on in verse 8. He says, the wind blows wherever it pleases. The wind is mysterious to the ancients in Nicodemus and Jesus' day. And Jesus uses this mystery to reveal another mystery. The effect of the Holy Spirit's work. We neither control nor understand the wind, yet we hear it and we see its effects. Especially if you're outside on Friday when it was blowing 30 miles an hour. Right? We see the, the trees that blow uh, in the wind. We see the clouds moving across the sky. We, we cannot tell where it comes from, nor can we tell where it goes, but we can see its effects. And so it is with the Spirit. Where the Spirit works, the effects are undeniable. Fear is gone. Worship improves. Abundant life is experienced. Lives are transformed where the Holy Spirit is at work. Ironically, both the mystery and the power of God's Spirit are displayed in the Scriptures that Nicodemus has spent his whole life studying. The focus and his devotion, so many years of study. Again, the scandal of grace. Jesus is challenging Nicodemus to reconsider his paradigm, his view of spirituality. So, and Nic- Nicodemus is, is slightly still reluctant. He, he asks the question again, how can this be? It's part confusion, it's part reluctance. He wants to understand, but he fears the ramifications of accepting Jesus' words. Jesus responded, he said, you are Israel's teacher, and you do not understand these things? He's basically saying, for years, Nicodemus has has taught others the condition for entrance into the kingdom of God, conditions of obedience to, to law and, and devotion to God and happy submission to his will. And here, Nicodemus faces a condition he's never considered, the requirement from rebirth from above. Even after Jesus' explanation, Nic- Nicodemus is still skeptical. And I want us to just pause at this point and kind of think about this. If Nicodemus is not good enough to gain eternal life on his own, then none of us are good enough. The Pharisees in that day, their ultimate goal was to live every moment of their lives in strict obedience to the law. And if Jesus is saying that Nicodemus needs to be reborn spiritually, how much more so do we need to be reborn spiritually? If Nicodemus doesn't measure up, then nobody measures up. It's challenging for him to consider this concept. He didn't really see his need for a Savior, that his life could never fully live up to a holy God Nicodemus' good is not good enough. You know, a few weeks ago I heard a story about an explorer, or a guy who was hiking in the mountains of the Sierra Nevadas, and he was uh, in, coming next to a mountain, and he noticed that there was a stream coming out of a mountain where there was no opening. And it was basically just coming out of the rock at the bottom of this mountain. And he kind of got curious, and so he wanted to figure out if he could figure out where that stream was coming from. So he started to dig at the rock and the dirt, And it took him quite a while because there was quite a bit of rock and dirt. And he actually found an opening where he kind of crawled in. And and sure enough, after he crawled for a a few feet, uh, it opened up into this rather large cave, this cavern that really nobody had had known had existed in the side of this mountain. 
And so he got his flashlight out. He began to explore this really large, dark uh, cavern. And what he began to come across was, was a number of skeletal remains of what to him appeared to be bears. Skeletal remains of bears in this, in this uh, cave. And he began to find dozens of them as he went further back in the cave. It was just a really odd discovery. And so he eventually went back into town. He told people in the town what he had found. And they eventually got uh, geologists and geographer, geography people and, and scientists out to the this, this site because it was quite a find. And so they began to study uh, kind of what, what, what they find in the cave. And they found, again, dozens of skeletal remains of all these bears. And they began to study kind of the mountain, and the geologists were studying what had happened. And they came to this realization that many, many, many years ago, this cave had been an opening where the bears would come in for the wintertime. It's kind of like the bear hotel for wintertime. And they would hibernate in this rather huge cave. And then when spring would come, and they'd come out of hibernation, they'd come back out of the cave, and they'd go uh, about whatever a bear does in springtime. But... They found out that a number of years ago, one winter, all the bears had gone in, but there had been a large landslide and a large uh, avalanche, and the entrance and the exit to the cave had been buried in rock and dirt, and there was no way for the, the bears to get out of the cave. And so, literally, they realized the bears uh, died in the cave because they couldn't eventually get out of the cave. And they found this one rather large uh, remains at the very opposite end of the cave and they kind of began to speculate was this bear the biggest and the baddest bear of all and maybe it had survived the longest but still it didn't have the means even in its size and its strength to get out of the the, the entrance that had been closed off and in my mind it's a little bit like the, the largest bear is like Nicodemus it had the best opportunity of anybody to get out but if Nicodemus cannot experience new life rebirth uh, eternal life without rebirth, then none of us has the chance. And I think in, in light of that, God was looking down at our dark, chaotic, uh, hopeless condition in humanity, realizing there was no way out for us. And in His love, He said, I need to send My Son on a rescue mission to save and rescue the world. And Jesus goes on in the story and He uh, tells Nicodemus the good news of hope that uh, this is what God is about. And he tells him in verses 13 through 15, he says, No one has gone to heaven but me. Jesus is the only authority in this matter. Only he has lived in heaven and on earth. And he says, If I am lifted up, all those who believe in me will find life. As Moses lifted the snake. Jesus is referring to an Old Testament reference where when the Israelites were wandering around in the wilderness, they came into this area where, again, there were a lot of uh, poisonous snakes. They were biting the Israelites, and they were, uh, they were killing them. And God told, Jesus, or God told Moses to build a bronze snake on a pole and lift that up and cause people's attention to come to the bronze snake on the pole, but also to lift their eyes to God, who would be their rescuer, and God rescued them. And in some way, Jesus is comparing himself to that situation to say, I'm going to be lifted up. I'm going to be glorified. He was foreshadowing his sacrifice on the cross, being lifted up and sacrificed for our benefit, for our lives, for our sin. And he goes on and he says, you know, if, if, if I'm lifted up, all those who believe in me will find life. 
And so for all of uh, Nicodemus' religious activity and his pursuit of spirituality, until he's reborn by God's power, he cannot enter the kingdom of heaven and will not experience abundant life. Again, the scandal of grace is forcing Nicodemus to consider, what does it really mean? Is my spirituality really true? And Jesus goes on and he shares with Nicodemus about God's gift of love that invades the darkness. And we come to verse 16, probably the most famous verse in all of Scripture, where it's recorded that God so loved the world that He gave. He gave. He gave His only Son. He gave sacrificially so that we might be brought out of the darkness. Again, I believe God looked down at our darkness, at our hopelessness, and He sent His Son on a mission of love. Interesting thing back then is that uh, the Jewish faith rarely spoke of God loving the world outside of Israel. This would have been just unheard of. The concept would have been scandalous to Nicodemus that God would love the whole world and everyone in the world. And we know that Jesus didn't come just for a select few. He didn't come just for the chosen or, or for the Israelite nation or for Jewish people. He didn't come for just the privileged or the religious leaders like the Pharisees. God's love compelled Christ to come for all. All men and women over this whole planet. Every person that God has created, God has loved with an immense love. He came for everyone in Saline County. He came for everyone that's in this room. God came for you and for me on a mission of love. You know, I read a, a book by Max Lucado a few years ago that I think really shares just a, a great concept of how much God really loves us. Uh, he wrote in his book, he said, if God had a refrigerator, your picture would be on his refrigerator. That's how much he loves you. If he had a wallet, your picture would be in his wallet. If he had a cell phone, your picture would be on the front screen of his cell phone. He goes on, he writes in his book, he says, you know what, he sends you flowers every spring and a sunrise every morning. Whenever you want to talk, he'll listen. He can, he can live anywhere in the universe. And he chose your heart. We go on in the story, in, in, in the sharing, and we see that, that those who see this light of Christ and recognize this tragedy of our darkness have one responsibility, to believe. To believe. It's that simple. Jesus says those who believe leave the darkness and they walk into or step into the light. It's both a commitment to believe that Jesus is God's Son and also to believe in, in order to become His disciples. To be his disciples means that we choose every day to live in the light of Christ. When I think about that concept about how Jesus is asking us to, to live our lives in the light, his light, in the light of Christ, I think about my dog, my dog Maverick. We've got a Yorkie. And, uh, and I'm going to tell you the routine of my dog to explain this. Every morning when we get up, we let Maverick out of his kennel. And the first thing he does, he wants to go outside and relieve himself. But then he comes in. And he knows that we're going to feed him breakfast. We feed him breakfast. He eats breakfast. And then it's the highlight of his day is after breakfast, he gets what we call a greenie. It's this little green bone that's supposed to clean the dog's teeth and make his breath smell better. I'm not convinced it makes his breath smell better. I've not experienced that. But it's, you know, he just dies to get the greenie. And then after he gets the greenie, he kind of goes around and he cuddles up to each one of us that are in the house. He wants to kind of, kind of reconnect with us and spend a little bit of time with us. And then after that happens... What begins for the rest of the morning is 
He lays down where the sunlight is coming through the window and on the floor, and he lays in the sun. And as that sun moves through the rest of the morning and the light is moving across the floor, our dog is moving with the light across the floor for the rest of the morning. And that's what I think that Jesus is inviting us as his disciples to do, is to be intentional about being in the light of Christ on a regular basis. Well, how do we walk in the light once we've made that decision to believe in Jesus Christ that he is God's son. Well, I think, you know, uh, Doug has shared the last couple of weeks about our focus on, on being disciples. And I think it's just an awesome focus this year for us as a church. And the council and the staff developed four questions for us to consider as we practice being a disciple of Christ. And if you haven't gotten this flyer yet, we've done it in the worship guide the last two, two Sundays. There are still copies out in the foyer at the table by the office. I would encourage you to go get one. But I'm just going to run through these four questions real quick because I think those are great questions for us to think about. How do we continue to practice and be intentional about being in the light of Christ on a regular basis? The first question, how have you seen the Lord at work this week in your life? So as we pay attention to how God is working in our life and in our world around us, wherever God is working, that's where the light of Christ is, and we join Him there. The second question is, how has God spoken to you through his word this week? Well, we understand that God's primary revelation of himself to us is through his word, through the Bible. And if we really want to know the Lord and we really want to be in his light, we need to spend time in his word every day on a daily basis. The third question is, in what ways is Jesus calling you to serve or to share your faith with someone? And we know to be a disciple means that not only are we to love God with all of our being, but we're to love each other. That's what it means. And so part of loving others is to serve others and to share our faith, the hope of the light of Christ with others. The fourth question is, how is Jesus inviting you to trust him more? In what area of your life? And what I've discovered after, after being a Christian for a number of years is, is that there are still parts of my life that tend to move to the shadows or are in the darkness. And Jesus is continually transforming me in those aspects of my life, especially when I take that thing that... I, that Jesus wants me to trust him more with, out of the darkness, and I put it in his light, that's when he begins to really do his transformative work in my life. So I think those are just four great questions that we can ask on a regular basis, and we can dialogue with each other as we go through our week, and we talk with each other about what, what, how are we seeing God work? What, how's he speaking to us through his word? Uh, how's he inviting us to serve or share with someone else? What area of our life is he inviting us to trust him with? So I think those are great practical ways to do that. I think we come to a place, though, in this passage that we knew Nicodemus was struggling with this. What keeps us from experiencing genuine rebirth that Jesus is talking about here? Well, I think one is doubt. We we sometimes doubt Jesus' credibility. It can't possibly be true. It's not logical. And I would agree with you. God's grace is not logical. That was part of what Nicodemus was struggling with. There's not much that's rational about God's unconditional love for us, for this world. It could also be arrogance or pride. You know, I'm a pretty good person. I'm a church member. I've been a church member for many years. I haven't really committed any really bad sins, you know, only small things. It's not that big a deal. If I do the right things, I'll be okay. But Jesus says, even in verse 18, in his conversation with Nicodemus, he says, Whoever does not believe stands condemned already because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. It's not how little or how much we've sinned 
or how good or how not good we are. It's about if we believed in Jesus, God's Son. You know, it's also times we struggle with uh, loving this lifestyle that we've learned to live for so long, a sinful lifestyle. We kind of like some of those things that we do in the darkness, and we're afraid of, what does it mean if I give my life to Christ and I'm now in the light of Christ? Does that mean I have to give up those things that I kind of like? What, what does that look like? And so we struggle with that concept. You know, I don't want to lose that part of my life. I'm not hurting anybody with those things that I do. God doesn't really care what I do, but he does care. Look at verse 19. When Again, when he's sharing with Nicodemus, he says, This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but men loved darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. We come to the heart of the matter. At the very heart of our core of our being, we have a sin problem. There's part of us that likes sin, but we also know there's consequences with that. There's a story that a mother once approached Napoleon, the emperor of France and of Western Europe, seeking a pardon for her son, and the emperor replied that the young man had committed a certain offense twice, and justice demanded his death. But I don't ask for justice, the mother explained. I plead for grace. But your son does not deserve grace, Napoleon replied. Sir, the woman cried, it would not be grace if he deserved it, and grace is all I ask for. Well then, the emperor said, I will show grace, and he spared the woman's son. It shocks us to hear that we can't do anything to earn entrance into the kingdom of heaven. Grace transcends human understanding. We want to earn or deserve God's favor. That's how we think. The scandal of grace challenges our thinking, and it makes it hard to accept. Nicodemus is neither evil nor uneducated. He simply places his confidence in his own ability. And in his understanding, the only way to enter the kingdom was to earn the right by way of obedience. But Jesus challenged him to think outside the box, to relinquish control and to receive the rebirth through God's power and by his grace. And he challenges you and I to do the same thing. Nicodemus is a religious man with a heightened sense of spirituality who is as doomed as any sinner that he crossed paths with. We suffer the same fate if we substitute religious practice or spirituality for God's grace. True spirituality is not based on a personal knowledge or ethical behavior, nor is it faithfulness to a religious tradition. True spirituality is based on faith by believing that Jesus is the Son of God and our willingness to step out of the darkness and into the light by placing our seal on the truth of Jesus, of what Jesus says and who he is. So how do we step out of the darkness and into the light of Christ? By simply believing. Paul puts it very simply in Romans uh, chapter 10, verse 9. He says, if you declare with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. It's as simple as believing that in Jesus and who he is and who he says he is. I'm going to close with a word of prayer. And in closing with a word of prayer, at the end of my prayer, I'm going to invite you, if you're ready to believe something that you've not ever chosen to believe, if you're ready to accept this gift that Jesus offers to all, his gift of love, his gift of grace, his gift of salvation, then I'm going to close with a prayer at the end. I'm going to pray it out loud and invite you, if that's what you want to pray, to pray it quietly in your heart. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your incredible love 
and Your incredible grace that has come to us. God, as we, we see Nicodemus and we realize that if Nicodemus is not good enough, that, that then none of us are good enough to measure up to a holy living God. And yet, God, in Your love and in Your wisdom and in Your mercy, You look down on our world and the darkness of our world, the darkness of our situation, the hopelessness that we face, that there was no escape without a Savior, without Your love and Your grace being demonstrated through His sacrificial love. And so You sent Your Son. You gave Your only Son to take on our flesh, demonstrate Your love for us, especially as He gave His life on the cross. And then we saw the power of Your love uh, through the resurrection. God, we're so grateful. We're so grateful for Your love for us. that We don't deserve it, but You love us anyway. And, and God, we're grateful for that. And, and if you're ready to receive Christ, if you're ready to believe and accept what He's done for you, I'm just going to pray this very simple prayer and invite you to pray quietly in your heart. Lord Jesus, I accept Your gift of love and grace, Your gift of salvation through Your life and death and resurrection. I believe that You are God's Son, and that You came on a mission of love for me. And Jesus, I recognize that I have sinned in my life. I have done the wrong things. I have done things that I should not have done. And I haven't, I haven't done things I should have done. And Jesus, I ask that You would forgive me of those sins. That You would pour out Your grace and Your mercy on my life. And I desire to be Your follower, Your disciple for the rest of my life. And I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.